Well, let us begin this morning over in the book of Romans. We've been dealing with the subject of peace. We're going to be in Romans 14. Now, keep in mind that this is an excursus. An excursus is a fancy word for chasing a rabbit. We were in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16, where we read about the Lord of peace that will give us peace always in all situations, in all circumstances. And it is that that has sort of triggered this little secondary exploration for the last couple of Sundays. And I'm not real sure this may be the last of our study on this subject, but it is a very needed one, a very broad one. It is amazing how much the Bible, the New Testament in particular, has to say about the subject of peace. Romans 14, we're going to begin reading in verse 17 through verse 19. Romans 14, beginning in verse 17, and as always, we're breaking into the middle of a thought, breaking in usually in the middle of a sentence with the Apostle Paul, but we will anyway. Romans 14, verse 17, for, that means because, the kingdom of God is not meat. And dream, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of man. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things with which one may edify another. Almost feel like I need to go back and reread that. Notice the statement in verse 17 that the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink. Well, what is it in? It's righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 19 again. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. Back there in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, we were dealing with that phrase, the Lord of peace, and I gave you several reasons why I believe that to be a reference to Christ the Son, the Messiah, although it could be to God the Father. There's a half a dozen times in the New Testament where God is referred to as the God of peace. But when you look at that text, it makes more sense to think of it in particularly as focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of those cases where even if I'm wrong, I'm right. It's a safe bet because God makes peace, we are told, through Christ. So it is not that we have one party, one person in the Godhead are doing it or not the other, anything like that. It is that God has brought peace into this world. I think that is the message of the angels As they, outside of Bethlehem, when our Savior is born, uh, I I tell you, I stood corrected out in California one time. I was preaching about how uh, the angel song in heaven is not worthy am I, but worthy is the Lamb. I thought that's pretty, yeah, it's, you know, pretty witty, wouldn't you say? Well, a guy comes up after church and he said, well, you'd realize that what you said was unscriptural. I said, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? He says, there is no verse in scripture that speaks of angels singing. 
And I said, well, boy, wait a minute. What about there in the Christmas story? Suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the, the angels praising God and saying, yeah. And the more I looked at it, the more he's right. Yeah, the only time you see singing going on, it's man. And it's particularly in the book of Revelation, it is the angels saying, but it is men singing. Singing what? This new song, this song of redemption. So maybe angels can't carry a tune. I don't know. That's possible. I, I sort of still sort of have the romantic idea that the angels sing, but they may just be me. Certainly it is the songs of the redeemed that are the echoing theme that we will be doing, the singing we'll be doing in heaven. But here, it so yes, it is true that God makes peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in a particular way, we were in 1 Thessalonians. Go, let's go there. Uh, those two Thessalonian letters, look at them very carefully and I'll show you my reasoning. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, Paul says, You became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, is he talking about God the Father or is he talking about God the Son? It is clear here that he is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. So from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Now, that certainly means it could be the word of God, God the Father. But here in this context, it appears to be the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we call the gospel is now sounding forth from you. Look in chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15, that rapture text. He says, For if we believe that Jesus, um, 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Uh, well, is that God the Father? Is that God the Son? It would appear it's speaking of the Son. It's the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. That's why it's almost got to be the Lord Jesus Christ here. He's the one who's coming back to us. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. It must be speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. And then go over to Second Thessalonians. Remember, it was right at the tail end of Second Thessalonians that we see this phrase, the Lord of peace. And here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Notice that must be a reference to Christ the Son. And so we have been following that theme, the theme of peace. Two Sundays ago, I spoke to you on the subject of Christ, the Lord of peace, is the one who makes peace. Makes peace in an objective sense between us and our God whom we have offended. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The word reconcile means to make peace. We, we use that word as I mentioned back then. Sometimes we hear of a couple about to get a divorce and then you ask a little later what happened. Oh, they reconciled. Now, what does that mean? They kissed and made up. They're back together. They made peace. Well, that's what the word means. And we have made peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not only the one who makes peace, he's the one, last week we spoke on the subject, who gives peace. There is peace in a subjective sense. 
My, my old mentor, E.W. Johnson, I've already quoted him a couple of times this morning in my class, but every time I get to preaching, I think of something he said once upon another. And um, he said that man, when he's justified, declared not guilty. That's a legal thing, forensic thing. He said he's cleared in two courts. On the basis of Christ's blood being shed, he is cleared in the court of heaven. In the presence of God, the judge of all. But he's also, he said, cleared in the courts of his own conscience. The book of Hebrews speaks of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus on our conscience. That our condemning voice of conscience that declares inwardly and subjectively that we are guilty is now soothed through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a tremendous observation to make, that the same gospel that clears us in the court of heaven above is the same gospel that clears us in the councils of our own conscience. That's why our friend Jerry Bridges used to say you ought to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because uh, if you're like me, you do things every day that you're ashamed of, things that you wish you hadn't done, things which stirs up our conscience and condemns us, and we need to once again remember the blood of a Savior shed for our sake. But today we're even going to go a third aspect of this subject of peace, and it is that the Lord of peace not only makes peace, the Lord of peace not only gives peace, but the Lord of peace commands peace. Did you see it in our text? Go back to Romans 14, if you've turned away from it like I have. In Romans 14, Paul is dealing with what we call matters that are indifferent. Matters of indifference. Uh, to try to explain what I mean by that, I had an old friend back in Houston, Harold Rudolph. Uh, he told me one time, he says, Mark, I was so spiritual at one point in my life, I prayed about what color a tie to wear when I went to church on Sunday morning. And I said, Harold, I'm afraid to break this to you, but I don't think you praying about what color a tie you're wearing is any sign of your spirituality. It's a sign of your carnality. I don't think your tie has anything to do with how God is either pleased or displeased with you. It has nothing to do with morality. Now, Oscar's tie, that's another whole field there, his bow ties back here in the corner. But, but, uh, you know, accounting for Oscar, outside of that exception, you're color of your clothes and so forth, the color of your car, the make, you know, whether you drove a Chevy or a Ford, do you really think God is pleased that you did one instead of the other? It's a matter of indifference. And Paul is dealing with those things, and he gives us a couple of examples. And one is what you eat. And, of course, we know there was this conflict over whether a Christian should eat meat sacrificed to idols, but here it's the idea, do you just eat vegetables Do you become a vegetarian or do you eat meat? And we know there are people who have consciences about those things. But do I get better in the sight of God if I don't eat meat? Now, there's reasons for health that we might do that or not do that. But the point is, what you eat has nothing to do with your spirituality. It has nothing to do with your standing before God. 
He gives us another example, the observance of days. And of course, coming up on the Christmas holidays, we're oftentimes told that we're doing something horrible here if we even acknowledge that there is a thing of celebration of our Lord's birth. Now, I certainly know the background of it. I know that it has no spiritual significance whatsoever, the fact that you do something on Christmas or don't do something on Christmas, as far as I understand it, has nothing to do with your spirituality. You're no better if you do, no worse if you don't. That's what Paul is dealing with here, matters of indifference. And the problem is, it is typically those matters that destroy fellowship in a church. I have, uh, you've heard stories, I have two churches splitting over the color of the carpet they're going to put down. You say, well, that's a ridiculous, ridiculous illustration. Jim Gables, my buddy, y'all don't know Jim over here in Birmingham. They had a church fight one time when he was at Oakland Baptist there in Birmingham over this table. They had had this table sitting back against the wall forever and a day. And they decided one group wanted to move it up one side of the church and the other group threw a fit. They wanted it back on the other side of the church. He said, I almost did the Solomon thing brought my chainsaw up there and cut that thing right down the middle and says, now there, do whatever you want to with it. Ridiculous things that we get all in a huff over. And those are the things that are in particular focus here. Now, it's much broader than that, but those are the things that particularly are in Paul's scope here in this text. And he sums up his judgment on the whole matter with this wonderful text. For the kingdom of God is not, and what he means by that, has nothing to do with meat and drink. Now, I grew up in a background that meat and drink had everything to do. You don't smoke, drink, go to the girls that do. You, some, some of you grew up in the same thing. You know, the devil's in the bottle. You dare touch that bottle, you get the devil in you by putting that. Oh, my friend, what Paul is saying here, look, that has nothing to do. Getting drunk does. But what you put in your body has nothing to do with your spirituality. You don't get better by abstaining from something. That's asceticism. I get better if I deny my body things it wants. That's not a Roman Catholicism. And so you understand that what Paul is saying, meat and drink, won't make you a better Christian. It won't make you a Christian in the first place. It won't make you a better one. Now, does that mean you have absolutely no qualms about what you eat or drink? I mentioned no. Personally, we have convictions about what we eat or drink. I do. And yet at the same time, I'm erring if I think that has anything to do with my standing in the sight of God. Well, what is it about then? If it's not in things like observing days and observing certain things I do or do not put in my mouth, Paul goes on to say it is about, his kingdom is about righteousness. Well, that has everything to do with the kingdom of God. It has to do with this thing called peace. That's that's the centerpiece of Christ's kingdom. It's the way we recognize, the way we spot it, this thing called peace and then joy. In the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be careful that we don't come to church on Sunday morning and look like we've been sucking on persimmons. You know, they have this long, straight face. Look like we're in agony. 
Now, I realize through some of my preaching, some of you may be in agony. I've been in agony before in a church service, so I understand that. Uh, it's sort of like Chinese water torture, you know. When will this guy ever finish? Uh, but at the same time, we ought to be glad. Let us. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So when we deal with things, matters of indifference, we're dealing with those things on which there is no clear scriptural Statement. And I mean by that then we're dealing with things that are cultural norms. I grew up in the country. Many of you did too. You grew up in the country, you know what I'm talking about. We had these little taboos out there, things you didn't do. For instance, in my community, a woman did not dare wash her clothes on the day of a funeral. It was a sign of utter disrespect, ladies, if your clothes were hanging out on the line when the funeral possession goes by. Because that was an indication, you see, that life was just going on like normal. And everything was supposed to come to a stop. Now, that's assuming some of you women still put clothes out on the clothesline. But you understand what I'm saying. We have our background tends to color how we think of these things. This is how I was raised. This was my culture. I have my own personal preferences. I prefer this rather than that. Or this is the way we always did it in my family. Right? Those things are powerful things. It's always the way it was. This is the way I was raised. But what Paul is saying is you dare not let these kinds of things disturb the peace and the fellowship of the church. In charity, we are to surrender our liberty in these matters. And yes, you are at liberty. Yet we are to surrender that liberty if it causes problems, if it causes, as Paul puts it here, the destruction of a brother for whom Christ died. Paul at one point says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat as long as the world stands. That is to be our attitude. We can either take it or leave it. If it's helpful for the propagation of the gospel, I'll do it. If it hinders the propagation of the gospel, I'll not do it. It's that simple. That's the rule. Does it keep the peace? Does it destroy the peace? That's the question. And so what Paul is doing here is giving us an example of how we are to strive to keep peace in his kingdom. And the reason, as he has stated it here in this wonderful verse in verse 17... It's because this is what his kingdom is all about. It's about this thing called peace. Now, to understand the kingdom of Christ, it helps us to contrast it with the kingdom of Satan. I was thinking this morning driving up here to church, what if there was a, what would Satan's Sermon on the Mount sound like? You ever thought about that? Suppose Satan had delivered a Sermon on the Mount. What would he say? Blessed are the what? You know what Jesus said. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the me. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? What would Satan's Sermon on the Mount sound like? Blessed are the getters. Blessed are the dominators. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after attention and fame and fortune. You understand? Well, what, what, why is that? Because the foundation of Satan's kingdom is founded on principles of self, 
self-gratification, self-exaltation, self-glorification. And it's the very opposite of the kingdom of Christ. I'm trying to give you some insight here. You can't see these kingdoms. It's not like the United States and Mexico. I'm about to leave this kingdom and go to that one. And I get in that one by crossing the line, the Rio Grande. I cross that line and I'm in Mexico. These kingdoms are spiritual. They have nothing to do with lines on a map or on the ground. So how do you know? How do you know? How would you know which kingdom is which if you saw it? And here we have a clue that the kingdom of Christ is a a kingdom that is humbling. I'm thinking of all the texts we have had to look on the things of others rather than on your own things. I'm thinking of particularly Philippians chapter 2. That I'm not concerned about me. That I esteem others, he says, better than myself. That's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. It's not a kingdom of pride and arrogance. It's a kingdom of being humble and meek. And that's why it's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. It's why those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are going to be filled. You you get the picture and you say, well, Brother Mark, can you make it simpler than that? How would I see these things in motion? My friend, the kingdom of Satan is fleshed out in this thing called the world. This system that surrounds us. The world, this world that stands at enmity with God, antithetical to God. A world that John tells us is based on three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You say love makes the world go round. Uh Uh-uh. Those three things, what makes the world tick? It's all about me. I want to feel good. I want to look good. I want to be better than you. And the kingdom of Christ is the very opposite. And I'm, my question is, where then would I see that kingdom fleshed out? Right here. When I see the New Testament church, I ought to see Christ's kingdom incarnate, embodied in the members, in the children of God, in the members of the body of Jesus Christ. It involves, as I've said so often, those three S's, serving, sacrificing, suffering. We serve Christ by serving one another. He doesn't need you to cook cooking the meal, but we've got other people that do. His body does. And when you do it for them, said Jesus, you did it for me. To suffer as Christ has suffered. To sacrifice as He has sacrificed. And so, I want to point you to the example of Christ when it comes to this subject of peace. And again, sometimes it helps us to see a contrast. And let me hold up to you the contrast of Muhammad. Muhammad, if you remember, the history fled to Medina. And uh, for a while, he relied on suasion, moral suasion, preaching to try to convert the people back in Mecca that were opposing him. That worked for a little while, but it just wasn't getting the job done. So what does he do? He commands jihad, holy war. And so he commands them to go to war. The Muslims are very fond of their rules of war, these rules that Muhammad gave them of how to conduct war, proud of the fact that, you know, Muhammad wouldn't let them just do war any old which way. He gave them these rules by which way they were conducted. And I'm thinking, you're proud of the fact that your hero commanded war. 
Can you, in your wildest imagination, imagine Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, standing up on that mountain, gathering himself an army to impose his kingdom by physical force? I mean, does that even enter into your competition? Do you remember the one time that they tried to seize him and make him their king? They wanted him to lead them into battle. And what did he do? He withdrew and hid himself from them. He would have nothing to do with that sort of advancement of his kingdom. How does his kingdom advance then? What's your weapon? It's the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. And my friend, that's it. It is the fact that we proclaim the gospel, the Word of God, and we beg and plead for God's Spirit to empower it. And that's it. If that doesn't do it, we don't have anything else. We don't have plan B. Don't bring out the tanks and the bazookas. If the proclamation of the gospel will not advance the kingdom of Christ, then we, we're out of ammo. We're out of tactics. That's all we know. And if they will not embrace it, what do we do? Shoot them? The worst, and, and we've just seen it in Second Thessalonians. I mean, the worst that we can do to anybody is excommunicate them. And in the case in Second Thessalonians of this brother who was refusing to work, you remember the context back there a few weeks ago? Here's a guy who won't hit a lick. What, what's the, what does Paul say? Beat him? Time to oppose? Whip him? What does he say? Leave him alone. Don't have anything to do with him. You see, that's the worst. It's just to withdraw from him. But the very notion that we can impose a spiritual kingdom by physical means is one of the greatest temptations of the church and one of its greatest failures in history. Again, I just point you to the example of Christ. You remember the time he and his disciples journeying to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, the book of Luke. And uh, he sends messengers ahead to go into this Samaritan village to get him a place to stay for the night. And these Samaritans refuse him. They won't let him in their village. And old James and John, sons of thunder, they pretty good nickname, they, they blow the stack. They say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them and destroy them like Elijah did? And what does Jesus say? You know not what manner of spirit you're of. Let that sink deep in your ears. What spirit are they manifesting at that moment? That's the spirit of the kingdom of Satan. You know not what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You understand? He's on a mission of mercy. Remember the charges the Jews brought against Jesus as he stood before Pilate. They knew the charges they condemned him of blaspheming, saying he was the son of God. That wasn't going to hold any water with Pilate. I mean, he's a Roman. He could care less. So what do they accuse Jesus of before Pilate? They said, this guy says he's the king of the Jews. Now, that'll get a Roman's attention, especially a governor, somebody claiming to be a king other than Caesar. That would be a sign of insurrection, of rebellion. And so he begins to question Jesus. What kind of king are you? And you remember Jesus says that if I was an earthly king, then would my servants bear arms. They would go after you. But my kingdom is not from here. That's not the way it is right now. In the New Testament, our only weapon 
is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Notice that our lives are to be congruent with the gospel. I realize it's been a while since some of y'all had high school geometry. You've slept since then. But when we talk in geometry, we use the term congruent triangles. Let's take a right, a right triangle, okay? Or, or, or isosceles triangle. All the sides and angles are equal. That's, that, I'm trying to make one there. Imagine that's an isosceles triangle, okay? All the sides and angles are the same. You can have a little one like mine or you can have a great big one, but one thing about them, they're all proportional. They're all congruent. They all look alike. Ever, every isosceles triangle will have equal sides and equal angles. Okay, not a hard concept. You'd have gotten a hundred on your test that day if you'd had me as your teacher. See, real easy, real easy. There is a sense in which we as Christians are to live a life that is congruent with the life our Savior lived. That's why he's our example. We are to look like, in a little way, the way he looked. And therefore, if he came on a mission of mercy and grace and love, it is demanding then that upon us that we live a life that is congruent with that mission. We are to be messengers of mercy, of love, of grace. If he comes proclaiming a gracious salvation, then we are to minister grace to those around us, that's just being in harmony with the gospel we say we believe. It's to live a life. Now, keep in mind, his triangle is a lot bigger than ours. Ours is the little one. His is the great big one. But still, ours is to be congruent with his. Our life ought to look like him. That's why they called them Christians. That's like little Christ, diminutive of Christ. They were little Christians. That's why the Antiochians meant that as an insult. When in fact the Christians adopted the name. They said, yeah, that sounds pretty good to us. That's exactly what we are. It's like dog and doggy. <laughs> it's the diminutive. So we are indeed Christians, followers of the Christ. But it is not only his example that teaches us that we are to seek peace, but his commands. Did you notice in Romans 14 verse 19... Look carefully at that verse. Romans 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things with which one may edify another. Follow after. Sounds rather uh, passive, easy. But it is, in fact, in the Greek, the same term that our brother Jerry Bridges, when he wrote The Pursuit of Holiness, you know, Hebrews 12, 14, follow after peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. He used as his title, The Pursuit of Holiness. When he wrote the book for young people, he called it The Chase. That's the idea of the Greek word here. This is not just stumble along in a canter. You know what a canter, how it got its name? Back in medieval England, the knights would have to go up to Canterbury where they swore off their sins for Lent. And so the knights, as they made their way to Canterbury, didn't go real fast. They just sort of cantered along. That's where the term comes from. No, this isn't just cantering, stumbling along. This is chasing, pursuing, hunting it down. Follow after peace with 
all men. Follow after peace, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm misreading the verse. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. That implies that peacemaking is not the easiest thing in the world. That has to have some energy expended. There's some effort involved if you're going to keep the peace. The natural state is for us to be at each other's throats, to be at enmity, to want our own way. That's what we are by natural men. But what we're being commanded to is a higher way of life, to pursue it, pursue it, to promote peace, to maintain the peace. We are not to let our pettiness, our self-centeredness destroy what Christ went to the cross to accomplish. And let that sink in. Anytime you say, well, I know we're supposed to be at peace with one another, but you just don't understand the price for me is just too high. Remember the price that was involved in Christ making peace with God for your soul. I don't care what you're dealing with. It's small potatoes compared to that. And so there is the demands on our life to lay aside the pettiness of the little things. Now, this is particularly, it's directed, I think, to all men. We'll see texts in a moment that'll tell you that. But it's, this text is particularly directed to the church. That towards one another, of all people, we're to be at peace. Now, let me give you another text that will extend this. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 17. Romans 12, 17, recompense, don't pay back to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And here's the verse I want you to see. If it be possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. You see, this is not like Islam where, you know, you're supposed to be at peace with your fellow Muslim. They can't even do that. But then you, you declare jihad on all infidels. Everybody outside of Islam and either, even other Muslims that don't see it like you do, you go to war against them. Notice that the direction here is that we are to seek peace, not just with our fellow Christians, that should be the easiest job, but also to all men, men that are without. And notice that Paul makes a reference here to the fact that it may not always be possible. But as much as you possibly can, as much as life within you, this ought to be the bent. The default position of your switch ought to be to pursue peace with all men. We may not be able to do it, but we're to seek reconciliation, not enmity, peace, and not conflict. Again, back to that Hebrews twelve fourteen passage. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Jerry took the last half of that verse Let me emphasize the first half. Follow after, pursue, chase, peace with all men. Do you see the universality here? Yes, we're to pursue peace, particularly in the church. But out there in the world, we are not to be the agitators, the rabble-rousers, the troublemakers. We're to be those who seek peace Now, let me just conclude by a couple of observations here. And I find it just the disgrace of Christians 
the pettiness sometimes that goes on, the minor things that we fight over, it sullies the reputation of Christ that we can't let such petty things go. But all the damage to the cause and reputation of Christ when Christians and the church resorts to physical violence. And it has been done. Don't kid yourself. We saw it in the Roman Catholic Church sending the Crusaders. We're still paying the price for that, by the way. And I know you'll see, well, what the Crusaders did is a small potatoes compared to what the Muslims did later on. I don't care that they did anything like that. It's a disgrace to the cause of Christ to think that you can go conquer with the sword in the name of Jesus Christ. What were they thinking? And then, unfortunately, even the Reformers in the days of the Reformation, what they did to the Anabaptists, what sometimes they did to the heretics, burning them at the stake. These things are blots on the name of Christ, blots on the Christian church. Uh, Don Carson was telling me that uh, there was a university, he didn't tell me which one, that one night they had, uh, you know, they have the RUF and the Baptist Student Union. These it was one of those kinds of meetings. And they uh, invited the Muslim students on campus to come. And, man, about a 100 of these students showed up. And the guys that were organizing this meeting got so excited. You have all these Muslims. So they say, let's stand up and sing a song. You know what they sang? Onward Christian soldiers. And one by one, the Muslims all got up and left. <laughs> Absolutely insensitive to where these people are coming from. Oh, the disgrace. And uh, we are to be at peace. I want to read you a text. I stumbled on this this morning. It's one of those things I was thinking about during the week and never did look it up till this morning. It is Psalm 120. Psalm 120, just the last three verses of that psalm. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. In other words, this is a Israelite saying, woe is me. I'm, I'm living among the Gentiles. I'm living among a godless people, people that don't know my God. Woe is me. Look at verse 6. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. Verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they or for war. There's the contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of Satan. And then secondly, beware of fearing your duty as Christians. We're talking about Christian duty. When Paul was saying that, follow after the things which make for peace, he's not throwing out a suggestion. He's giving you a command. He's giving me a command. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. We have, in the, especially in Reformed circles, certain parties that would say anything that even smacks of duty is legalism. But I want you to notice how much of the New Testament is made up of duty. Do this. Follow after this. Practice this. That's our marching orders. In that same circle, one circle I'm thinking of, they say, you know, we, we worship Jesus. We, we want to worship him. And we, one guy said, people accuse us of making Jesus an idol. That's exactly what we do. 
We worship the Lord Jesus Christ like an idol. And I'm listening to that and I'm saying, you know, that all sounds well and good except for one thing. An idol is dumb. An idol never talks. It never speaks. You can put the idol up on your shelf and you can talk about how pretty it is and how wonderful it is, but you never have to do anything because he never tells you to do anything. That's an idol. Jesus is not an idol. He's the living Lord. That's our profession. And he will say to you and I, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Can you imagine being at a job, you're working in an office, and the boss's office is down the hall. And while he's away, you're just sitting back there, you know, doing whatever you want to do. I'm thinking of the some of the classes I was in in school when the teacher was away. You know, we're throwing spit wads, you know, we're having all... And then the teacher comes in and everybody straightens up. And then as soon as the teacher leaves, we're back to throwing everything in the room. Can you imagine an office working that way? They say, boss, boss, but they do not the things that he says. What a mockery of the title of the name. And so it is with Christ. How dare we call him Lord, Lord, and do not what he says. And here is one of those duties that he lays upon you. Is it legalism to do what Christ says? It all depends, doesn't it? Is it legalism that my wife got up this morning and cooked me some bacon and eggs? I guess, wait a minute, I should have checked with her before I used this as an illustration. It could be, right? She's fishing for a present on Christmas Day, you know. She's being nice. (laughs) It could be. But I don't think that's what was motivating her. Is it legalism for a wife to serve her husband? Like that? Is it legalism for your children to obey you when you tell them to take out the trash? You see, we are children of God. We are called to be obedient children. We are the bride of Christ. We're to love and serve our Savior. Legalism says obey in order to. In order to. I do this in order that I can get this. Gospel obedience says, because of. Obey, because of. We love Christ because He first loved us. We obey Him because He obeyed His Father. He did His duty. And now the one who did His duty, who saved our soul, says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're coming to a Observe an ordinance that is about peace. Certainly that's one aspect of the Lord's table. Remember in the old days in Israel, you had these peace offerings where they sat down and had a meal together to enjoy and to celebrate their peace. I was thinking about the American Indians. You know, they used to smoke the peace pipe. That was their ceremonial thing. Uh, I've read stories where when tribes were battling They bring the peace pipe out on the battlefield and everybody quits fighting. Because they are reminded that this peace pipe is what they smoke together to enter into this treaty. They had other symbols. Broken arrow. To break the arrow was to make peace with one another. To bury the hatchet. It's an old Indian expression. 
our weapon of warfare, we're bearing it. Oh, my friend, we have another way of symbolizing our peace. I remember as a kid, I think it was watching Cochise on black and white TV. Some of y'all remember Cochise. And, and they became blood brothers. You remember how they became, they cut their hands, always ooh, cut their hands and put their hands together. And the mingling of their blood, they become blood brothers. That's how the Indians did it. We're one now. We're at peace. My friend, we're related by blood. But it's not our own blood. It's the blood of our Savior shed for us. And it is that peace that we celebrate today. Peace with God. Peace of God. And peace with one another. May God help us as we strive. Oh, it's a shame what you see people fighting over. It's just not worth it. Not worth disturbing or destroying the peace. David's going to come superintend the table today. David, come ahead.